It's exciting times, though, this particular episode that we're doing. Go on. Because it was recommended by a listener. What? One of one of my poddy peeps got in touch yeah. to give me a suggested episode. It, actually, more than one suggested episode, but this one just jumped out. So, before we start, we've really got to say thank you, Ali J. Prince. Thank you. You've taken the time to find us a really good story. Is, Where's I want to know more about Ali. Where's Ali from? I don't know. Maybe this will be shared with me in the future, but it was Twitter. Uh, not Twitter, it was Instagram. <laughs> it's very good. I, I was, was going to say Twitter's not message. called Twitter anymore. Yeah. Oh, yeah, X. No, I, X. Was, I was dropped a message on Instagram saying, would you be offended if I suggested some some topics and why would why would you be offended i don't know i guess some people might be very sort of protective like no i have my schedule plan for the next seven years how dare you try to interject into my perfectly formed (laughs) list of of different things that i'm gonna do but no i was i was all for it and i did say i would give a shout out to ali so cheers consider yourself shouted out i'm uh, drinking a nice cup of british tea i'll cheers you with that hey up I'm Joe Heathcote, and this is Consistently Eccentric, a British history podcast where we try to make sense of some of the lesser-known and more absurd people and events these islands have produced. So let's get started with This Story Begins in 1782. 18th century, like it. Slap bang in the Georgian era. Yep. Because that was the year that Jonathan Martin was born in Hexham on the banks of the River Tyne in Northumberland. Nice area. Mm, well, I've I've never actually been up to the northeast. I have to be. Oh, really? It's it's very cool. I, I've never had occasion to go up there, and it, it, unless you've got a reason to go, it's a bit of a trek going west to east. Yeah. Across the north, I, d- I don't trust the roads over the Pennines at the best of times. <laughs> They're on the other side. <laughs> I'm not going over the Woodhead Pass. No. If there's even light drizzle. <laughs> he was one of a brood of thirteen children, born to William Fenwick Martin and his wife, Isabella. William had met Isabella while working for her father. And, when the father had disapproved of their relationship, he had literally taken her on horseback to Gretna Green, so that they could marry. Classic. So he'd done what we now think of as the real sort of cliched, we're going to Gretna Green to get married. Yeah. He lived it. He was doing it before it was a cliche. He was doing it when it was cool and romantic. Good for him. Mm. This impulsivity was something that never left William. And in between having kids, he and his wife bounced around the north of England and Scotland while he worked as a tanner, a woodsman. He joined the army for three months, but he injured himself and didn't like it, so he came out. He worked as a publican, and he even tried his hand at teaching sword and single stick in Newcastle. Uh, you need to explain that one a little bit to me. Sword and single stick. Is that like fencing? Essentially, it's, yeah, it's like sword play. So he tried his hand at being a sword master mm-hmm. and teaching people how to parry and block and uh, other swording terms in Newcastle. <laughs> I don't know why it didn't take off. They're more than happy to just fight with the fists. Yeah. Yeah, you don't need a weapon. Yeah. Weapons are for southerners. We We will just use our brawn. Yeah. But this wanderlust that he had and this inability to to stick with anything was why, of the five children who survived infancy, none were born in the same place. 
Oh, that's interesting. Five kids, five different places of birth. Do you know what they are? I know, because this was the most fun one. Okay. That the second oldest Martin child, Richard Martin, Hmm. was reported to have been born at Brigadoon. (gasps) Yeah, we've been there. We've been there. And your mum's been there recently. She has been there. Yeah. Yeah. Mama Green was taken to the the Burns um, Birthplace Museum. Which is where Brigadoon is. She was indeed. Jonathan was the third surviving son. He was born tongue-tied, and this was not corrected until he was six. Okay, so what does that mean? It means, you know the uh, the little bit that Uh, connects your tongue to you? That that's extended all the way to the tip of the tongue, so it stops your tongue from having full movement. Essentially, it rendered him mute, and they didn't see the way to getting this fixed for him until he was six years old. Was it a common procedure, though, at that uh, Yeah, time? yeah. Tongue t- it had been known through to antiquity. It wasn't something that was a particularly um, unusual, mm-hmm. you know, issue that needed to be, yeah. to be resolved. Do they normally, would they fix that when you're a baby, normally, like now? I think now? normally they fix it really young, because the, Just... the earlier you fix it, the, the, more ta- the more chance you've got of being able to develop your language must... along yeah. the, the normal routes. But he he didn't get it done till he was six, okay. which obviously meant that he spoke very little, and he continued to have a speech impediment the rest of his life. Mm. While he was still a small child and mute, he took to leaving the house before dawn, without his parents' knowledge, to go walking in the woods. Okay. Apparently, he once stumbled on a lead mine, and he stood happily in the pre-dawn glow, watching the miners go about their business. Was it the Seven Dwarfs? It was um, you're looking at proper burly northeastern mining Hi-ho. folk. Hi-ho! If you can do that in a northeast accent. Hi-ho! <laughs> Way-ay! I can't do it. No. We'll, 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 we're going to park that accent thing, I yeah. think, because neither of us are going to do a convincing northeast accent. And I do no. not want to, in any way... Offend. Offend. Do you wonder, I wonder if Ali is from the north... East, and we've just offended the person who gave us this. Who gave us a story? I hope not. We'll we'll be told. I I will get a message saying if we've offended. Okay. So he's there, this six-year-old child at dawn watching these miners, and at some point, one of them looked up <laughs> and noticed this pale, unspeaking figure just looming over them, and they thought it was a ghost. <laughs> <laughs> that opaque, opaque. But you can imagine all these burly miners, and then one of them points it out, and they're all stood there. And it's like, well, it can't be a ghost. Okay, you go and look. N- <laughs> no, you go. You're fine. You you can go and see what it really is. Anyway, eventually, someone became brave enough, uh, and they went and managed to figure out it was just a five year old child who was out on their own and couldn't speak. No. Which in many ways sounds a bit creepier. If you just stumbled on a child that wasn't speaking to you at all, in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> just watching you. Yeah, that's that's more creepy than a ghost, to me. How, what? I don't understand why he did that. Why did he wander off? He just liked walking in the woods. He liked communing with nature. But he couldn't uh, explain any of this to his parents, and they left the door unlocked. So he woke uh, up, decided he wanted to go just for a walk, and just did it. He's he's a very impulsive character. That's one of the things we're going to learn about Jonathan. Okay. He was also, reportedly, very accident-prone. Specifically in his childhood, it was falling into holes and pits of all descriptions. 
I'm not surprised if he's walking around on his own. Like, but it, it happened with startling regularity. He he wrote his own autobiography, um, and the amount of times he describes falling into something or falling off something, he was just constantly. I'm th- gonna sort of suggest repeated head injuries may contribute to what mm. happens to him later. I mean, saying that, I fell down a manhole when I was a child <laughs> and ripped all the skin off my leg. It's mm. fun. So, yeah, I get it. I've done it. I've been there. Yeah. And uh, all kids will have a few, but his was sort of repeated. It's almost like that um, concussion, you mm. know, a CTE kind of stuff. We know that there was some long-lasting damage done because Jonathan began to have really vivid dreams. Mm. Now, despite eloping herself, Isabella, Jonathan's mother, she'd been determined that she was going to teach her kids how to live good Christian lives. She's very much into the religious thing. Yeah. And even by the age of six, she'd managed to convince Jonathan that heaven and hell were definitely real places. And that if he did anything wrong, and we're talking to the smallest infraction, he would be going to hell. So he better straighten up and fly right. It's a good way to get your kids to do what you want them to do, isn't it? In the short term, (laughs) it it serves that purpose. I wonder about the long-term impacts of that really sort of... um, Strong. Yeah, very strict, very inflexible um, interpretation of Christianity. Well, you do, I mean, you do see the repercussions of it, don't you? A lot from a lot of um, stronger faith backgrounds. Mm. And for, uh, for Jonathan, because this was the, the context into which his life was lived, he became convinced that his dreams were, in fact, prophecies sent to him directly from God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. And it may have been, you know, just a coping mechanism. It helped him feel in control during his childhood because it was quite a chaotic life if they were moving so often. You know, he mm-hmm. didn't, he wasn't able to form friendships with the local kids because he'd be gone. In and a I can imagine that's quite unusual at that period of time as well. The the constant wandering, I imagine yeah. so. Yeah, most people would get a job for life and would sort of stay mm-hmm. within a small geographic area, and they were. Yeah. Up, it, they had family up in air, obviously, which is why they, they went up there for, for yeah. periods of time. But it was like Northumbria, they'd go down as far as sort of like York and things, but all of that sort of region up to Edinburgh at times, you know, mm-hmm. the family really covered the miles. And this is pre motorway or train travel. Oh, yeah. this <laughs> There was a lot of walking, I imagine, in Jonathan's <laughs> younger life. And you weren't allowed to complain in the Georgian era. You'd... Well, he couldn't complain, could he, poor lad? Oh, no, he couldn't. Well, it could post six. I bet there was a lot of pent up <laughs> comments yeah. that he'd want to make to his family it's when he finally developed speech. Writing them all down. Yeah, <laughs> just as a book. Open it. Page one. Bastard. <laughs> <laughs> just a long list of insults with dates attached. Yeah, I like that. However, although viewing these dreams as prophecies gave him a sense of control and purpose, helped you know helped him manage all the all the things that were going on Mm. it also presents a problem for us because we can never be sure which of his stories about his own life that he wrote in his autobiography actually happened fabricated his own story he yes he did like to um in embellish his own legend Mm. as would i as an example jonathan reported in one version of his autobiography because he wrote it four times (laughs) <laughs> this will not do. That he had a premonition that something bad would soon happen to the family. And sure enough, 
a few days afterwards, while Jonathan was watching, his sister, his younger sister, was grabbed by a neighbour called Peggy Harbuck. In a case of mistaken identity, because some kids have been causing trouble, Peggy comes out. The kids who caused the trouble have scarpered. Mm. She's, She's seeing Jonathan's sister. She's also seeing Red, so she grabs this young girl and she threw her down the stairs. What? Yeah. That is a like big overreaction. It depends what the kids were doing. Jonathan's a bit vague about how they'd upset her. But uh, yeah, it does feel like it would be an overreaction no matter what it was. Yeah. According to Jonathan, his sister died of her injuries a few days later. However, mm-hmm. it was not until after the funeral that Peggy finally confessed to the crime and was sent to prison. Oh, good. Jonathan, however, he saw everything that had gone on and he reflected that his sister had obviously done something bad in order to have incurred such a punishment from God. Oh, okay. So he thought she was deserving. Culpable in her own murder. (laughs) Because, well, it wouldn't have happened to you unless you'd done something sinful. It's your own fault that bad stuff happens to you, yeah. This was the first sign of a potential mental instability in Jonathan. Why is religion and mental instability always so closely linked? No comment. (laughs) That's for the listener to decide. Yeah, I've just decided it for them. Let's go. Things only seemed to worsen when he was sent to his uncle's isolated farm in order to recover from the shock of witnessing a murder. He spent years living on his uncle's farm and... Because, you know, kids had to be useful. Yeah. He spent those years shepherding his uncle's sheep. Fair. So that's long days of isolation, which Jonathan decided to fill by spending his days meditating on the goodness of God for hours at a time. Okay. So he would take with him his Bible and read the scriptures and then spend literal hours just hyperfixated on what the and ruminating on what those words could mean. Well, I tried to read the Bible once, the King mm. James version, and I couldn't make head nor tail of it. Well, you you obviously haven't um, I haven't got the gift. Divine the no. spirit the divine spirit has not yet filled you. No. <laughs> um but no. if you keep persisting and reading your Bible daily, apparently it does eventually happen. Mm-hmm. You have that moment of um inspiration, that moment yeah. of conversion. Fine. Would you believe that after these years of isolation where he spent his time doing nothing but reading the Bible and thinking about it really hard, Jonathan decided that he was destined for great things, that he was chosen by God? Hello? Hello, sorry, because your thingy bell went on. <clears throat> sorry, that was I, um, I put my glass down and uh, it hit the microphone. Oh, no worries. That was just in case there was a disaster. <laughs> I didn't want to keep talking while you just bled out on the floor. No, I'm still alive. Can go, you go. imagine if that was the the podcast? Yeah. <laughs> and then just... Well, I'd have to put it on YouTube so I could just flash up all the R.I.P. Then just a compilation of our best hits. Thank you, Ali. You killed him. Eventually, though, Jonathan had to reintegrate into society and he returned to Hexham to begin work as an apprentice tanner. Though he still took time to take regular trips to the woods in order to praise God in his own unique way. Okay. So, you know, eventually reality comes a calling, but he's he's keeping that idea that he's the special one. 
and that he's chosen and he by God. he takes himself away to do all this stuff on his yeah, own. Yeah. So at this point, he's not really integrating into um, C of E or any other sort of Christian community. It's very he's much... Solitary. Yeah, he, he's gone off and developed his own very clear and fixed beliefs on what Christianity is, mm-hmm. what's right and wrong. He's got his own morality going on. Yeah. And when it came down to it, after he'd served his apprenticeship, which is basically indentured servitude, he was like, do you know what? I'm destined to do much bigger things than processing animal hide. That's fine for your run-of-the-mill. That's such a funny way of saying it, processing animal hide. That's essentially what a tanner does, isn't it? I know, I like it. It starts off as (laughs) animal skin, it ends up as leather. Mm, And then we can all kind of forget that it was an animal at one point and wear wear really nice shoes. So as soon as his apprenticeship was over he headed straight for London with a vague plan that he would he would travel the world until in, inspiration struck, until he, he found his purpose. So it's like, okay. if I'm chosen by God, which I am, I doubt I'm going to be able to serve his grand plan in Hexham. Okay. That, it seems too small. Little sort of town seems a bit of a small place. So first I'm going to, to London. Yeah. But I'm sure that eventually I'll find I'll find that um, inspiration, that divine intervention that's going to lead me to my purpose. Yeah. Now, announcing loudly that you wanted an opportunity to travel the world in London in 1804, while the Napoleonic Wars were in full swing, was a recipe for disaster. I can imagine. Priorities are elsewhere. Well, within a very short period of time, Jonathan was press-ganged into the Royal Navy. So he was tricked into the Royal Navy. Um, Come, spread your word of God in this boat. Yes. Come on. <laughs> Where we will shoot at people. Yeah. There's nothing more godly than shooting at foreigners. Yeah. He ended up serving very unwillingly on the HMS Hercule. Like it. And if that sounds like a very continental name for a British ship... It does. You'd be right. It was built by the French Navy. Was it stolen? Yeah, it was captured during its maiden voyage in 1798, (laughs) with 290 of its crew killed during the fighting. Jesus. Which, you have to assume that's got to be pretty much everyone. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know that these were big battleships, but still... Yeah, but that's a lot of people. Nearly 300 people. How big is the crew on a... And I'm surprised, how is the ship still afloat if they've killed all their people? Did they go on board? Yeah, it was it was hand to hand fighting. So, from from the story that I could glean, um, the Hercule was trying to run away from the British ships, but then a storm blew up and it was forced to drop anchor. It's always a storm. So it wasn't um, cannon versus cannon sort of broadside shots. It was the the British ships came up next to him and it was boarding parties. So the ship was actually in really good nick. If you ever are going to try and capture a ship, that's the, one. the best yeah. way to do it. Now, over the course of three years, Jonathan reluctantly learned to be a sailor, as he figured that at some point, if he knew how to be a sailor, he could give the Navy the slip, and then he'd be able to return to England on a merchant vessel. So if he has those skills, yeah. in any port, he's going to be able to get himself onto a different boat. So learning, Clever. it's a long, Can long he speak by this point? Yeah, yeah, he can speak. Right. He's just got a speech impediment, but he speaks right. a lot. Mainly about the Bible um, and religious matters. He He's very much a, a one-track mind kind of thing. He's yeah. reluctantly learning sailing, but that's all feeding into his plan to eventually leave the Royal Navy and continue with his religious 
his mission pathway, his mission, because he has a mission. Yeah, it's not always clear what that mission is, but he's a he's a man who's <laughs> got he's got drive. You've got to respect that, if nothing else. The drive yeah. of this man is oh, it is biblical. During his time in the navy, Jonathan was involved in the Battle of Copenhagen in 1807, where the British launched a surprise attack on a neutral country. Okay. <laughs> because that was the thing about the Battle of Copenhagen. Um, Denmark was a neutral country. It was just the British were worried that they would allow the French to use Copenhagen as a staging post. Ah, uh, so they just went for it. So they just went in and just said, right, we're, we're bombing you. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Until you give in to all of our demands. It's Copenhagen the is a lovely little place I've been... Have you? Yeah, very nice. Well, imagine imagine a bunch of British naval ships just bombarding the port there. Mm, yeah, mm. I can imagine that, because that's what we do. Mm. And Jonathan himself, he wasn't disgusted by having to engage in the bombardment of civilians, which led to nearly 200 deaths, and a firestorm that destroyed over 1,000 buildings. Again, Jesus. on a neutral country that we were not at war with. <laughs> Until that day. Uh, until that day. Yet, would you believe that later they joined the French... <laughs> Oh, I wonder why. <laughs> but we'd already destroyed the navy. Yeah. Um. So it was like, okay, well, fine. You can join the French. What are you going to do? <laughs> you can't get to us. Yeah. No, 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 no. No, but he wasn't scandalised by any of that. He was scandalised that the captain of his ship ordered the sailors to attend dances every Sunday, <gasps> which Jonathan considered to be a very Blasphemy. sinful thing. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I'm fine with firing massive cannon. Uh, but I want to homes. dance with a lady. Oh no, with men. It's, okay. This was on sh- on board ship. This was man on man dancing, and he found right. it to be very sinful. Uh, I mean, so when shortly after the Battle of Copenhagen, a storm blew up and nearly sank the Hercule, Jonathan told his shipmates while they were trying to save the ship that it was a punishment from God for their heretical dance moves. Because <gasps> they were jiving. Yeah, but hip you know, to hip. They're there trying to save the ship, working really hard, thinking they might die. And And he's just having a go. Yeah, he's not helping. He's just stood there going, well, what did I tell you? This this is God letting you know that your dancing was sinful. And I, for one, am applauding him for this real clear message. In fact, I prayed for something like this to happen, lads, and now it's happening. he's on the ship. (laughs) Like... There's a sense he will die of, too. Yeah, lack of self-awareness. Also, he always assumes that God will save him. Mm. Anyway, shortly after that, they did save the ship, but he was transferred to a different <laughs> ship. Bye. Because everyone who sailed with Jonathan seemed to dislike him. Such as a bloke called Mr. Nickel, who okay. later recalled when asked about Jonathan. He was often sulky and idle. He did not pray much but was inclined to argue on religious subjects. He said that he had a light that we had not, and that he held meetings in his dreams. He told extraordinary and unaccountable tales. So it was just a bit preachy, a bit of solitude, a bit unlikable. The kind of person we might today describe as a narcissist and a hypocrite. Yes. I think, you know, it's, well, I, I pray in my own special way, and my way's better. Mm-hmm. And actually, all of these things that I've done and that I'm going to do, and you're just you're just a sailor. So, mm-hmm. of course, you're going to be worried about the state of the ship. I worry about loftier things when I commune with God in my dreams. What a dick. <laughs> this was further proved the following year when they were docked at Portsmouth. 
and he decided to sneak out of the heavily armed naval dockyard as he had a sudden urge to buy himself a set of paints. <laughs> okay. So there's a war on. And everyone <laughs> who's least... going in and out has to be signed in and out because it's it's top secret. It's, yeah. you know, threat of sabotage, all of these things. And he's like, well, I can circumvent all of that because I want to daub some paintings. And I, I am Jonathan Martin. I have the right, should I wish. <laughs> because God is in me. When he was caught upon his return, he openly admitted that he had swanned off from his duties and explained that his family liked to paint, as if that explained it. So what did he want paint for? So that he could just paint some pictures. Because he said his, <laughs> all of his family liked to paint. So yeah. why should he not be allowed to paint just because he's in the Navy? Yeah. And it is at least true that his family liked to paint. Okay. As his youngest brother, confusingly called John, but just John, so there okay. was Jonathan and John, uh, would go on to become a famous painter and engraver who counted Dickens, Turner and Faraday as friends. Ah. But... While that's quite impressive, it's not a valid reason to leave your post during wartime. No. Also, Jonathan was nowhere near John's level in terms of painting. No. <laughs> you know, the 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 um, creative gene hadn't been equally distributed amongst the Martin clan. <laughs> Maybe that's why the uh, John was so good, yeah. because it all just gone to him. Yeah, he he was. Everyone everyone in the family liked to paint, but only one of them was a painter. Mm, of course. Richard, he, he didn't even get involved. He went on to become a quartermaster and he fought at the Battle of Waterloo. Oh. So the the Martins, you know, they were really involved in the Napoleonic Wars. I mean, there was a lot of them, wasn't there? So there was a lot. There was 13, did you say? Uh, no, only five survived infancy. So they oh, were okay. producing a lot of children, but mm-hmm. the, uh, the the attrition rate wasn't particularly good. There's still Martin quite a family. lot of people. Mm. Well, and then we had the one who died, um, the sister. Who got yeah. thrown down the stairs. So it's just the Martin boys who survived, it seems. Because mm. the four boys survived. Uh-oh. During his time in the Navy, Jonathan was just as accident-prone as he had been as a child. He fell off the ship on at least two separate occasions. <laughs> Do you reckon that was his um, shipmates being like, just get rid of him, just get him gone? Those are just the times he fell off the ship. He also... Because he he would run the rigging, so he'd be right up in sort of like you know the the heights oh, of the of the sails. They're so high. And apparently there was one occasion where he fell, and he said that by divine provenance, he was able to save himself because he reached out and grabbed and stopped himself. What he doesn't mention in his book, but people later reported, was that the thing he grabbed was another sailor's hair, and he tore out a section of this poor bloke's scalp. <laughs> oh. Good. But it was okay because it helped Jonathan to survive. Oh, uh, yeah. He, narcissist, 100%. But those weren't the only ways that he, it wasn't just falling. He'd expanded his repertoire of near death experiences. <laughs> uh, it included almost being eaten by a shark. Okay. It included almost setting the powder store alight in uh, yeah. cannon deck of the ship. And yeah. a very memorable occasion where he nearly succumbed to heat stroke in Portugal, having again absconded from the ship to get drunk on wine. Um, and he somehow, during that adventure, lost his pants. Of course. He never explained how. He's just like, and I I, I woke to find myself with a severe headache and no pants. I'm like, <laughs> you're not the first. It, right? yeah, we've all been there. And you won't be the last. We've all been there, yeah. But to Jonathan, his constant near-death experiences were just further proof that God was personally looking out for him. Yeah, Rather I was going to than... say, yeah, he's going to get that complex of, 
well, all these bad things have happened to me. And if it was anyone else, they would have perished by now. If that happens to me, I'm thinking, right, I need a job that needs much less spatial awareness, much less physical dexterity. Um, I need a job in an office, like the kind of job I do. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The chances of me falling to my death doing my job are very slight. No. And I I feel he would have done better in in something like this. Inside. (laughs) He'd have been a great podcaster. He could just sit and get all of his stuff out and could preach. scream into the void. Jonathan Martin, I mean, his book basically was like a proto-podcast. It was just his opinion written down. 56 is... pages of almost stream of consciousness. This is fact. Mm. A final miracle apparently occurred on his last voyage back to England. Uh, by this point, he transferred to a merchant vessel and they were apparently carrying a cargo of sulphur back to Portsmouth. I don't know why we would need a, a ship full of sulphur. That sounds okay. pretty metal. I, I wouldn't have expected a Christian to have wanted to be transporting sulphur. No. Um, but there you go. Here well, we are. Anyway, sailing back, a rogue wave smashed into the ship. Mm. And according to Jonathan, the crew were ready to abandon the ship based on just the sheer level of damage. But he, seeing that this was his time to shine, he took the initiative and he fell to his knees and prayed loudly for deliverance by God. (laughs) He beseeched on behalf of his shipmates for his God to come down and save them. And again, according to Jonathan, his prayer was answered. Yes, I'm very sceptical of his uh, accounts. Well, the storm suddenly departed, and the ship was found to be just seaworthy enough to limp to port in the now calm sea, the tranquil... Mm. Lake Calm Sea. It was 1810 when Jonathan left the seafaring life behind. He immediately made his way back to the northeast and took a job as a tanner. He got married and had a son called Richard. Okay. Though tellingly, he never mentioned the name of his wife in his autobiography. (laughs) (laughs) She's not important. That is the inference you make when you, you start to learn about their relationship. Well, it's about him, isn't it? It's all about him. Mm. Although he'd settled down to what seemed like a perfectly respectable life, and you'd think, well, maybe he got that wanderlust out of his system. You know, Mm. he's gone back to the same region, he's got the same job, he's now a family man. He was becoming increasingly preoccupied with the idea that, despite his apparently very friendly relationship with God, he had yet to feel that he'd achieved salvation. Okay. So he he decided that he hadn't convinced himself that he had been accepted and absolved of his sins. Okay. This was based mainly on a dream he had shortly after getting married, where his now dead mother had told him he would be hung one day. (gasps) So he'd had this dream and decided, actually, I've not done enough yet, even though I saved that ship through the power of my prayer. Needs to keep going. Yeah, I need to. I need to double down. To change this is not the, the time. Of history. Yeah, to take my foot off the religious gas pedal. Yeah, I need to slam that thing to the floor. He began attending multiple church services every day. Okay. And when I say multiple, at times apparently one church service would end, and he would sprint up to five miles in order to catch another one, just as I it mean, was starting. I'm just going to put it out there. This is a little bit obsessive. Feels that way. Mm. His wife was remarkably understanding about all of this. Maybe she didn't like him either. She did say that she was concerned about his 
head, by which I, I assume she meant she'd taken to hiding the knives yeah. <laughs> um, around the house just in case. But she tolerated it as far as any woman could. Yeah. She set only one rule. She's like, there's only one red line here, Jonathan. You're not to start attending Methodist churches. <sighs> okay? okay. Yeah. Y- you're not joining a Methodist fellowship. Everything else, you can go to as Fine, many C of E. not them. Not them. Anyway, Jonathan began attending Methodist churches. <laughs> and his wife responded to this flagrant sort of ig- ignoring of her one rule by refusing to ever have sex with him again. Hmm. Meaning that Richard was destined to be an only child. Oh, poor Richard. Jonathan was enamoured with the way that Methodist preachers didn't prepare what they were going to say in advance and instead appeared to speak with the support of divine inspiration. I still don't know what the difference is. I probably do, but I can't remember. Think of it as pared back as possible, so there's no ritual. Um, They take all the ritual out of it. It's very spontaneous. You turn up and God will speak through someone within the congregation. And oh, so it can be anyone. Yeah, there's no sort of formal hierarchy of priest. You'll have someone who will lead um, the, the meet, mm-hmm. but they're but not anyone... above anyone else. Yeah, anyone okay. can, can be inspired and can, can preach. So like the communists of churches. I'm sure they would love it to be described that way, yes. <laughs> and while he loved all of that, he was also a man who's been prevented from having intercourse so he felt torn between the new and exciting religious practice. And getting his end away. Yeah. Mm. You know, if he, if he was with the dependable old Church Could of England... Could he do both? He'd be getting his end away. Yeah. In the end, this tension, it made him crack. And Jonathan became convinced that the only way to prove which form of worship was the true way for him to go, this at this crossroads that he found himself in life, would be to try and disrupt a Church of England church service. That's his way of testing what the true path is. Okay. That's because disrupting a church service was considered a crime at the time. And Jonathan reasoned that if he were not arrested, then that would prove that the Methodists were in the right. And if he were arrested, he would return to the fold of the Church of England, go back to producing many, many children, uh, and, you know, sort of settle down into that life of of a family man. Yeah. Just like, um, you know, his brothers were doing, just like most of his friends were doing. Because somehow so he still had friends. Comply. Yeah, he's going to comply. But it, God can send him a sign to either dissent or, or comply, and now is the time for him to do it. I'm sure there could be another test that he could do rather than... No, this is the test. Okay. You'll find there are a lot of tests that he comes up with that are... Okay. <laughs> a bit zany. Yeah, his his rules are made up on the fly. Um, and don't always make logical sense. No. But anyway, one Sunday, after he decided this was the test, <laughs> he hid himself in the pulpit. And when the congregation had assembled, he stood and quickly began preaching his own sermon. Oh, my goodness. He was dragged down by the clerk, and he was forced bodily to sit in a pew and shut up. However, crucially... When the clerk of the church approached the constable, who was also, you know, at the service and said, are you going to arrest him? The constable said, nah. <gasps> so I'm, the I'm Methodists not getting involved in this. were the correct That's ha- That's what he concluded. He was like, yeah. the constable, God stayed his hand from the handcuffs. Therefore, 
I am fine and dandy to to go with the Methodist way of doing things. Yeah. Unfortunately, his increasingly erratic behaviour was becoming not just worrying to, to the local Church of England vicar, but also the local Methodists. I was going to say, do they want to be associated with him? Well, they just so happened uh, that the biggest uh, Methodist group in the area were a bunch of Wesleyans. Okay. And the Wesleyan church decided that they needed to expel him from their society pretty quickly. <laughs> They're like... <laughs> and we've covered them. Yeah, he's like, he, he's a bit too intense for us. Yeah. Because at every meeting, it's him who's preaching. Yeah. No one else is getting a look in, and it's very much his way his, or the highway. Yeah. Cult uh, leader. Yeah, he's not, he's not really into the communal idea of this. It's very much, oh, here are a group of people who won't tell me to shut up. He's going to hijack that system and use it for his own benefit. By the time they were were kicking him out, Jonathan Mm. was beyond caring. He'd very much developed the idea that actually he was, um, you know, a a Christian sect of one. But he was the right one. So he would just try and convert everyone to his way of thinking rather than joining and trying okay. to make do with imperfect examples of Christian... So everyone else was wrong and he was right. Yeah. Okay. Which, I mean, you've heard quite a lot from his life. As you can see, he's always been in the right with everything yeah. he's ever done. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been proven to be the case many, many times, conclusively. Yeah. Clearly. His solitary Christian path led him through several jobs before he eventually landed in Bishop Auckland where he began regularly disrupting church services and generally being difficult. <laughs> Just being a nuisance. Apparently he, would, he, he wouldn't he would try and get up in the pulpit quite so much, but he would heckle loudly and <laughs> like the, the vicar would make a statement and he would immediately try to debate with him. That's funny. Have you ever seen Young Sheldon? I imagine it's he similar. He does the same, yeah. yeah. Just w- will not allow the person yeah. to just continue. Doesn't realise it's a monologue, yeah. <laughs> not, a, not a conversation. Um, he also liked to leave notes on the church doors, uh, such as the following lovely example. Ho, prepare yourselves to meet your God, you double-hearted sinners. Cry aloud for mercy, and now shall my God make bare his arm and conquer the devil, your great master. For the monster of hell shall be completely overthrown, and you and him shall not deceive the nations any longer. For now shall God be worshipped in spirit and truth. Now you shall and must throw away your little books you carry into the pulpits to deceive the people with. You now preach for wine and gluttonous living, and not for precious souls. Will you not get your portion with the rich man in hell if you do not repent and find mercy? I mean, he's got a point of... Uh, the Christian meaning, hasn't he? I mean, the one thing I do respect is that he all of these notes that he he ever sent, he signed <laughs> and put his address on. So he was I really, he was genuinely this was his was way it. of trying to encourage discussion. I think it's like, well, you won't you won't debate me during your services, so I'm going to leave you a note, and this is my position, and Brave. you can come and find me. And we can have this discussion. We can have this out. Because he said it like things, yours faithfully. It wasn't like, fuck you at the end. It was like, yours in best wishes. All the best. Yeah. Kindest regards. Love to the wife and kids. Yeah. (laughs) Jonathan Martin. In 1817, there was a glimmer of hope that Jonathan 
might avoid what seemed an inevitable march towards prison. Um, He learned that the Bishop of Oxford, a bloke called Edward Legg, was due to visit the area to oversee a confirmation at Stockton. Now, Jonathan had heard, because obviously he was, you know, keyed up on all the church gossip, because it was his specialist subject, um, that Edward was a good man. And he was seriously considering being confirmed himself by Edward. Before he could commit to this plan of action, though, he'd need to make sure that Edward Legg was truly a man of God. And the best way to do this... (laughs) Go on. According to Jonathan, it's another one of his foolproof plans. Yeah. Was to attempt to shoot him. (laughs) What? This guy is definitely not well... Now, he didn't own a gun, so he visited his older brother, William, who happily provided a gun to him, because William himself was openly mad. Oh, okay. So something running runs in the family. But William was also doing quite well for himself, so he was um, upgraded from mad to eccentric. He was a true eccentric. Yeah. His main thing, he was a natural philosopher. He rejected the theories of Sir Isaac Newton including gravity. Okay. And he had his own theories that he put up called um, Martinism, which okay. were in in contrast to Newtonian physics. He didn't believe in the, the, the Newtonian physics concept and model of, um, you know, how things worked. He wanted his own brand. And he wanted his own branding. Uh, he was described by his friends, this is William's friends, as being yeah. perfectly cracked, but <laughs> harmless. Oh, I mean, that's fine, isn't it? If you're a bit nutty, but you It would nice. have been fine if he hadn't been the person that Jonathan went to for advice and support. You know, in, oh. in all other situations, yeah, he was harmless, but when his dangerously mad brother comes yeah, and, and asks for a gun, a gun so that he can shoot the Bishop of Oxford... Oh, God, did he kill him? Did he kill him? Okay. No. okay. Luckily... He didn't only tell William his plan, he also told his long-suffering wife. And then, even more fortuitously, he left the gun undertended for an afternoon on the kitchen sideboard. Good times. His wife took the opportunity to hide the gun. Yeah. And Jonathan, rather than getting angry about this, he just took it as another sign from God that he shouldn't actually shoot the bishop after all. (laughs) So he's like... Well, the gun's disappeared. Ah, that is God telling me that I don't need to shoot the bishop, for he is indeed a good man. He did attend the service without incident, aside from the fact that he rather loudly commented that Edward Legg was very corpulent. Okay. So he he called the guy fat, but he didn't (laughs) shoot him, which I, I, you know, it's the better outcome. Well, (laughs) he might have really hurt his feelings. Mm. It turned out, though, that his wife had not only hidden the gun, she'd also informed the local magistrate of her husband's plot. Yeah. And Jonathan was arrested shortly after the service. Yeah, I mean, fair enough. That's planning attempted murder, isn't it? Well, when he was asked directly by the magistrate if he would have shot the bishop, he responded that all the clergy needed shooting. And then he proceeded to go on a long rant about his religious beliefs and how they were superior. Which was apparently the wrong answer to Did the question. Did we dare ask what he thought about thought about Catholicism? If he was if he was referring to the um, the Church of England as being this overly superstitious den of um, inequity, I can only imagine what he would have thought of the Catholics. <laughs> um, but I didn't I didn't pick up that he'd ever really 
considered no. them or interacted with them. They were too far, um, too far gone, too far down the other end of the Christian spectrum from to even consider. Yeah. They were just dismissed, <laughs> out of hand. <laughs> but because of the answer to the question that he gave, which was honest, um, he was swiftly committed to West Auckland Lunatic Asylum for okay. life. No chance of parole. West Auckland Lunatic Asylum was a private enterprise and was actually little more than a minimally adapted house where Jonathan was pretty much at the mercy of the keeper, one Mr Smith, whose mood would fluctuate wildly depending on how drunk he was. And while you think this would be very distressing for Jonathan, the fact that sometimes he was basically allowed to live a pretty normal life, whereas at other times he was being beaten and confined alone in a room for weeks at a time, he believed that the experience was a trial that had been given to him by God to prove his resolve. So this was all part of the overarching plan. Doesn't give up, does he? No. It's like, of course I need to be sent to an asylum. That's yeah. only right and good, because wasn't it's Jesus God's himself plan. rejected by the, the majority of people during his lifetime? Yeah. However, his trials were reported by one of the servant girls to the authorities, who considered them to actually be abuse. And he was moved to Gateshead Asylum, located on the beautifully named Sour Milk Hill. (laughs) This was a much larger operation that could house between 80 and 90 patients at a time. So the idea was with increased um, visibility, with increased amounts of staff, there's also increased oversight. So the the likelihood of abuse kind of goes down. I mean, that doesn't generally work, but that was the, the theory at the time. Yeah. Jonathan once he arrived and found that there was this massive kind of um, population of people who had not a lot to do, he decided to take advantage of the situation and began organising his own prayer meetings for the other inmates, which apparently caused no end of trouble for the staff. Yeah. (laughs) Because he was given his theories and then all of these, you know, severely mentally ill people were taking what Jonathan was saying to be absolute truth. And that was causing them to be very, very disruptive. Oh, yes. So initially they tried to stop him, but they found that the disruption that could be caused by 70 or 80 um, inmates at this asylum was nothing compared to the amount of difficulty Jonathan could cause by himself if they weren't allowing him to (sighs) preach. He sounds like hard work. He he was, because apparently if, if they tried to stop it, he would then direct all of these complaints to the staff at all times about why he wasn't allowed to and that it was his right and that God was, you know, needing him to preach and that they were they were preventing these great I things from they happening. They were just like, just shut him up. Just and the thing was, he wasn't he wasn't doing this in a kind of um, there was no pressured speech. It wasn't like he was becoming um, excited or agitated when he was saying mm. this. He would just keep on with this kind of perfectly Drone. droning, reasonable tone, just like, well, you see, the thing is, and I see what you're saying, but. Have you considered it this way? So it was just this constant drip, drip, like, drip. Why are you still talking? Because he's got nothing else to do now. He's, yeah. You know, Jonathan's not locked in the asylum with the staff. The staff are locked in the asylum with him. <laughs> yeah, they can't get out. They're the ones who, who desperately want to leave. And he's like, well, actually, I, I've got a congregation of nearly 100 people here when I count in the staff. If I convert all of you, I've got a ready-made church. I mean, yeah, fair enough. In June of 1820, Jonathan was working in the gardens of the asylum and he felt a sudden urge to visit the local castle. An urge I'm sure you can appreciate. I mean, uh, of course. Sometimes you just wake up and go, I need to be at a castle right now. I mean, I do. (laughs) Mm. 
<laughs> it happens. He just so happened to have the key to the gates in his pocket. Yeah, me too. Uh, and he set off. He decided that as he was already out after he visited the castle, he may as well drop in on relatives in Hexham, as it was only 20 miles away. Yeah, of course. His relatives were reportedly surprised to see him. Uh, yeah, as you would be. After visiting his relatives, he, he considered what to do next. And he came to the conclusion that he may as well carry on to Norton to see his wife and kid. After all, it was only a further 50 miles of walking. <laughs> Just keep going, yeah. And he enjoys the fresh air. He's yeah. used to walking all over the north of the the country, so... Yeah, that was his childhood, yeah. wasn't it? So, But before he visited home, you know, his wife and child, he decided he best drop in on the local magistrate who had sent him to the asylum in the first place to ask if he could possibly be allowed a few more freedoms as he was clearly very sane. Okay. So he wasn't even going to ask to, to be freed from the asylum. He was going to go to the magistrate and go, I, I'm glad I caught you in. Anyway, about this me living in an asylum for the rest of my life, they're not allowing me to pray quite as much as I want. Um, <laughs> and you need to fix this. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm fine with staying there, don't get me wrong. Um, but I feel like my human rights are being infringed. Um, <laughs> so I, I just wanted to, to bring that to your attention. It went about as well as could be expected, and Jonathan was duly um, rearrested and returned to Gateshead, where he was relieved of gardening duties for the foreseeable future. Yes, mm. I can imagine. Uh, he was actually put in fetters, so they, they attached chains to his feet. Oh, so he can't move. Yeah, and I mean, I'm surprised they didn't put one of those things over his mouth so we couldn't talk. <laughs> you know, what are them iron oh, they're, they're, bars? Um, you know what I mean? Like the metal, like the kind of yeah, mask things that mm. go round your face and they hold your tongue Skull, down. The Scold's Bridle. Something like that. That's yeah. what I think it's called, yeah. I, th- I think it must just not have occurred to them because that does seem like it would have solved the problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Make him be quiet. He hadn't quite got round to visiting his wife and son and even worse, after his little um, jolly outing, his wife and son were not allowed to visit him again until the following year. God. In 18... 18- 21, when his wife revealed to him that she was dying of cancer. And despite her pleas on her deathbed, the keepers of the asylum decided not to allow Jonathan to visit her. Indeed, they weren't even willing to take the fetters off. It had been over a year. So they were like, there's no way you're visiting because that would require us to take those chains off your legs. And that's not happening, Jonathan. And we're not doing that, yeah. That should have been the reason that Jonathan began planning a new escape attempt. But the actual reason that he began planning a new escape attempt was that he believed God wanted him to go for a walk along the Tyne River. <laughs> I mean, it's a nice river. Yeah, and I'm sure it was much nicer then. We're just at the dawn of the Industrial Age. I'm sure it yeah. was very this much pretty, yeah. less full of pollutants. Yeah. Um, with the idea of going for a lovely walk down the river in mind, he pocketed some stones from the garden and he used them to slowly wear away at the iron fetters until he could get them off. He then Is broke it... out through the ceiling of his room onto the roof and stole away into the night. That must have taken a while. Yep. But as the one thing we know about Jonathan, he's determined. And once he's, yeah. got a de- he's decided something, it's just a matter of when, not if. Yeah. If he, if he, if he turned these sorts of um, obsessions to good, who knows what he could have achieved, but it, it went down this weird cul-de-sac where he just got stuck. Stuck in, yeah. But it's all making perfect sense to him. Mm-hmm. You know, this is all... 
God's plan. Yeah, it's an arrow pointing towards an eventual goal. He doesn't know what that goal is, but he knows that everything is moving him inexorably in that direction. Yeah. This time, he remembered not to visit the magistrate, and instead he headed for the house of his friend Edward Kell. Edward gave Jonathan food and drink, and he did eventually this time visit his dying wife, but only after touring most of Scotland in search of work. priorities yeah so he went to see if he could get a job as a tanner again and he figured that if he went to scotland he wouldn't be recognized and forced to go back to the asylum so he went to glasgow bumped Mm. into a lad who who knew him and he thought oh shit okay went across to edinburgh and it was the same bloke who he bumped into again (laughs) oh no (laughs) so again he he took that as a sign from god that he actually needed to return to england Okay. Because he was apparently being followed around by this person he'd used to work, he'd worked with way back when. After his wife died, Jonathan spent three months working in Hull before he decided to return to Norton and ask for his old job as a tannerback. So this is the town where he'd been arrested and he'd been sent to the asylum in the first place. Does he just think that people are just going to forget? Oh, don't worry about it, mate. It's fine. Yeah, so he's he's been on the lam this time for a good four or five months. Yeah. And he's just going to rock back up into his old village where his wife died. Surprise! And that no one's going to bat an eyelid. And amazingly, this time the magistrate didn't order him back to the asylum. And he was given his old job back as if nothing had happened in the intervening years. Do you think the, the magistrate had just had enough of yeah. him? Just like, oh, go away. The hassle of trying to control you is too much. Just, yeah, fine. He sounds like he's got ADHD. It's just impulsive. I'll go home. They'll, I've forgotten about it. I'm sure they have. <laughs> and it was all it was all going to work out fine until the vicar returned from a trip that he'd been on and he made it quite clear that Jonathan had to leave immediately. Because while the magistrate and his former boss were like, yeah, we'll just give in, the vicar was like, he's not coming in my church and he's not leaving me shitty notes. He needs gone. Yeah. I'd, I'm not saying you have to send him back to the asylum. I am the fucking authority yeah, around but here. But you need to send him the fuck out of Norton. <laughs> with this is my parish. To not come back, yeah. Mm-hmm. I represent God here, not yeah. Jonathan Martin. He went to Darlington in 1822, where he found work with the tanner, who also happened to be a Methodist. Win-win. Mm. He's got a job. He's got somebody who will introduce him to a new religious fellowship who don't know him yet, and so might not (laughs) immediately reject him. Um, And feeling that his struggles were now at an end, he published his autobiography in 1826. Did anyone want to read his autobiography? They did. Even though, because he published it that year, he never ended up writing about the event that actually made him famous. Okay. Am I going to have heard of this man? You may have done. Okay. I hope I, I hope you haven't, and that this is something that you're going to bring up to other people, but we'll okay. see. The book did sell around 14,000 copies over the cool. next few years, giving Jonathan an even more inflated sense of self than he already had, and yeah. providing enough income that he could start preaching full-time. <gasps> so he would travel from town to town. Is he going to be a founder of a new wave of church? Oh, no. No? I think that's where he thought it was going. That's where I think it's going. But no, he he stumbles at the final hurdle. Because at this point, uh, he is going him. from town to town with copies of his autobiography, which he, you know, sort of sells as proving the glory of God and all the struggles he went to to come to this understanding with God. And it's enough that he can survive off it. Mm-hmm. 
you know, he's, he's sold 14,000 copies, so he's, he's selling a, a decent amount considering he's charging a couple of shillings for it. Mm. Um, Everyone wants to read about the madman. Yeah, but he didn't see it like that. He's like, well, people are buying into my version of Christianity. Every town I go to, there are a few people who read my book and realise I was right, and slowly, like at the fisher of men that I am, I will collect followers. The change will come. Yeah. Martinism will no longer be my brother's crazy, you know, re- replacement for Newtonian physics. It will it come will to mean mine. my religious movement. And at some point, as with all cults, I'll introduce the sex. <laughs> but the fact that people were buying his book, that appeared to validate all that Jonathan had always claimed about being a chosen one. And he yeah. celebrated by getting married again okay. to a woman called Maria Hudson. And together, the couple moved to York at Christmas in 1828. God, they do get around. How old is he at this point? Uh, he would be in his mid-40s at this point. Okay. So they moved to York because um, he could see that, 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 you know, it was building. His time was coming. Yeah. And he believed that being in a major population centre like York was at the time, would um well it still is now i guess would allow him to to fully form this new religious movement so he needs yeah. to be where enough people were that he could get that groundswell yeah uh, so he took to walking around york and selling his book there and preaching to people apparently yeah. wearing a little black cape because he was nothing if not very fashionable um <laughs> and selling his book however he also had a, an ulterior motive which i don't think he mentioned to his wife okay Because the first day after he arrived, he decided to write a letter to the clergy of York Minster Cathedral. This letter began, I write, O clergyman, to warn you to fly from the wrath to come, you who are bringing a grievous curse on the land. And it went on in that vein. Okay. It was quite an openly hostile letter. Yeah, obviously ended with him signing his name and address and... Obviously, uh, happy to receive you at any time. I will uh, provide wine and biscuits, uh, (laughs) Jonathan Martin. But yes, it was a long, rambling letter that was full of accusations and full of um, thinly veiled threats to do something or that something bad would happen to them. He wrote further letters on January the 5th and 6th. And by the fourth letter sent on the 16th, he was describing the clergy as wine blabbers and beef eaters whose eyes stand out with fatness. <laughs> See, he'd gone from making threats to just insults. It was just a list of insults. Although I'm pretty sure I saw a documentary once and it was about the... Um, uh, it was about York specifically, about mm. the clergy and that, and how drunk they would get like walking between like the town and the church and they'd give sermons drunk and stuff. So maybe... I mean, he the, the, was. Right. I, I do remember there being a lot of pubs around the the sort of Minster area. Yeah, it, it they, wouldn't be difficult to get drunk before I, a service. Yeah, I think they were like constantly drunk. Okay, well, let's give let's give Jonathan a bit of uh, the benefit of the doubt then. That not everything he was saying wasn't completely unfounded. Yeah, you know, it, there were some kernels of truth in in what he was saying. Yeah. To be fair, after this uh, fourth letter, he did sign this one off as um, your best of friends, Jonathan Martin. So <laughs> He just wanted a debate. Yeah, he he just wanted a debate. 
A final letter was delivered on January 21st, which was wrapped alongside a copy of Jonathan's autobiography. <laughs> so he's, you know, he, he's ramping it up. He, over the course of a month of living in York, he sent five notes to the clergy, like, challenging them. man? And he's, he's out every day preaching, so they must have seen him. I used to have, just slightly change of subjects, but I used to have a supported person who used to be really anti, uh, like, whaling and, like, uh, killing the whales and stuff. Mm. And she was convinced that the Japanese government were behind all of this. So she would uh, phone the Japanese embassy constantly to, to tell them that she didn't want them to kill these animals. What a confusing series of phone calls that was for Mm. whichever member of the just general Japanese bureaucracy. She had a really thick Glaswegian accent as well. Can you imagine? And I'm guessing as she got more agitated, it became more incomprehensible to someone who wasn't, you know, able to sort of key into that accent. She used to phone Toyota as well. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, bless I, I like that she felt strongly about something. Yeah. Did, did you direct her into more sort of um, positive ways of, you know, pursuing that goal? Did you sort of direct her towards Greenpeace and no, Peter I left. and all those? Oh, you left. Okay. That's, that's the other way to deal with it. Yeah. Now, when I say Jonathan delivered, um, he didn't use the postal service. He left the letters in the Minster, uh, <laughs> assuming that eventually a member of the clergy would pick them up. However, only one of them actually was found by a member of the clergy. So rather than it being a series of letters, uh, as far as they were concerned, it was this one-off crank. The others had been found by just members of the public. Okay. He'd just, you know, taken them home for a little laugh or whatever. Hadn't really reported that they'd found these things. So it wasn't, to the clergy at least, it wasn't a a series of ever-increasingly threatening letters it was just this one it's just this one random yeah that had been signed by him and it's like oh well he's got that off his chest i'm sure yeah. that's that's the last we'll hear of jonathan martin oh, what's he building up to jonathan though he assumed that they'd received all five and he was disappointed that no one had responded mm. after all he had put his address on them <laughs> and he resolved that he was going to have to demonstrate the seriousness of his warnings by engineering some divine retribution all by him very self What's he going to do? He purchased 25 guns. No, no, the gun thing's done. Okay. That didn't work out the first time. And he's he has this internal consistency. When he's tried something and it hasn't worked, that's God saying, choose a different path. Okay. Try something else. He's not going to go back to the same well. Yeah. On Sunday, February the 1st, 1829, he attended the evening service at the Minster complaining that the organ was particularly buzzy uh, and that it distracted <laughs> oh, him. God, can you imagine if he was alive today, his reviews on Google and uh, TripAdvisor would be horrendous. Oh, he, he'd one-star everything. Yeah. And for things that the, the restaurant couldn't, you know, possibly have any say over, sort of like, I came here and when I left there was a storm and I got wet, one star. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he's, he's that kind of guy, you know... It, it's all just nothing is coincidental nothing is just random chance everything is directed at him in some way yeah. and he's going to he's going to hold you to those random acts and random situations that have happened as if you planned them definitely oh, i can't believe he got married twice 
<laughs> How could you live with this man? I don't know. Maybe yeah. they were hoping that they'd actually have quite a quiet life because they'd be too busy, like, yeah, but you couldn't just burn the toast because it's everyone. not just, oh, I've burnt the toast. It's God is punishing me with, you know, <laughs> with charred bread. Toast. What did what I do, just... oh Lord? How did I fail you? Jesus appeared in the toast. Oh, God. You could imagine. That would probably have been the best thing for him. And that, yeah. that could have been the end of it. Just like that's the religious sort of thing Did he hangs his hat complete, on. Completed yeah. it, mate. You're the guy with the Jesus toast. Yes, I am. God's chosen one. How are you? So, yeah, he went to the service, complained about the organ, and I assume that was loudly. Loud enough that it could be heard. Yeah. Um, however, afterwards, when everyone else was milling around, having the tea and biscuits as you always do at the end of a church service, mm-hmm. or every church service I've ever attended, there's always been tea and biscuits. Oh, always. He snuck off, and he found himself a little hidey hole. And he waited for everyone to leave. Yeah. For the uh, all the clergy and all of the people working in the church to have their after-service drinkies. Um, mm. and then The blood of Christ. Yeah, head off home. Because you've got to finish off that blood of Christ. You can't just leave it in the, in the chalice. No. It's got to go. Um. And probably there's six or seven other bottles that you had just in case you got a particularly... Stashed. Yeah, yeah. busy service. They've all got to go as well. You can't have any blood of Christ left over. No. Um, so we waited until everyone had gone, including the watchman. So he waited for the watchman to lock up. And then he came out of his hiding spot. First of all, cut down some of the ropes um, for the bells. And he fashioned a way of climbing up into the bell tower where he set out a lantern. Okay. Because he felt that he had to give everyone a sporting chance for what was going to happen. So he was going to send a signal. And if no one responded to his signal and came to investigate the church... Then it was God's way. (laughs) Yeah. So we got this this, um, lighthouse-esque kind of deal going on in one of the towers of York Minster. And, you know, it's the three towers church. So one of those has got a little light in it. And, of course, no one notices. That building is huge. It is gigantic. I imagine if you would live in York... After a while, you don't look up because you would just give yourself that sense of vertigo every time. Yeah, it is massive. Mm. We we went up it when we went there, and there's yeah, a bit yeah. where you have to walk along like a board on the guttering. I bet M hated that. She got up, but on the way back, she she sort of stopped at that point and psyched herself out. And mm. um, the voice of God came over a tannoy telling us not to dawdle, which I thought was very sort of. Um, unsympathetic to the situation that Em found herself in, that she was literally trapped on the roof oh, God. of a cathedral, and they they weren't for it. They were just like, "Come on, we need to get bums on seats. We need to make that church money. Come on, move on, move on, get down." Yeah. But you know, he used his former sailing skills to get up that tower with ease and to get back down. So yeah. His lights up there, and he waited a little while. No one noticed it. So he's like, "Right, that's it. I've given them the final chance for God to intervene on their behalf. He's not done it." Let's get on. Let's get down to business. What's he going to do? He started a rather large fire. <clears throat> um, setting fire to the woodwork in the choir area, making sure that it was very, very clearly you know, established um, before he shimmied his way out of a window well, and headed so. off back towards his lodgings. By the time smoke was noticed, the next morning, the fire was raging And over the course of the next day, the next day and a half, actually, the men of the Yorkshire Insurance Company Fire Service, the 7th Dragoon Guards and many others tried in vain to halt the destruction. Poor York, (laughs) Minster. 
Once the fire had finally burnt out on February 3rd, it was discovered that a section of the roof of the central aisle, approximately 131 foot long, was completely destroyed, Mm. along with most of the internal woodwork, including the organ, the medieval choir stalls, the bishop's throne, Mm. the bishop must have been livid, and the pulpit. Well, he didn't like that organ, did he? (laughs) No, no, they were going to have to completely refit it, hopefully with one that didn't buzz so annoyingly. It was quickly established that the fire had been deliberately started as um, he'd made no attempt to to make it look like an accidental thing. He'd literally piled up a stack of Bibles and then just burnt them. them. So when they came in, they were like, right, there's a box of matches. There's the point at which loads of stuff that wasn't normally in a big pile here was piled up. And look, there's some tools that were used to break open this window in order that whoever did it could leave. It didn't take long after they'd established it was clearly arson as well. For someone to suggest that it might be worthwhile taking a look at the bloke who'd been leaving threatening notes around over the past I mean, month. Yeah, it's quite a wise connection to make. Because suddenly, after the fire had started, all those people who had found the notes and, you know, just taken them as a curiosity... It all twigged. They yeah. all came and sort of sheepishly went, actually, uh, I think you might want to look at this bloke, because I found this in the in the Minster a yeah. couple of weeks ago. and This is fucked up. Yeah, we we just thought it was funny, but it turns out, no. No, he was, was being quite serious about everything. Shit went down. Jonathan, however, when they went to his lodgings, he wasn't there. He'd already left York, and he was mm. making his way home to Hexham. He'd scarpered. Yeah. He decided to go back to Hexham with his, I'm going to assume, quite terrified wife, because she knew what he'd done. But she went with him anyway, because if you, if you're willing to set fire to one of the most um iconic buildings. iconic buildings in the northeast <laughs> you know this was this was before st james's park had been built so it's probably the most iconic building yeah in the northeast <laughs> are you comparing york minster to a um football stadium it's not just a football stadium it's a very impressive football stadium st james's park is it i don't even know what it looks like uh, it's it's a bit like celtic in that there's three tall stands Mm-hmm. And then one of the stands along the pitch is lower. So it, okay. it's, it, it's a really pleasing configuration for a football stadium as far as I'm concerned. Okay, I'll look it up. Yep, and one day we'll go, possibly. For that, for that podcast that yeah. we've not done yet. The, the podcast about football teams, yep. yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay, I see, I can see it, yeah. There'll be a time after the kids are older um, when I'll have disposable income again, and that will be the day. Yeah, when we're old. Anyway... A reward of £100 was offered for his capture once he realised he'd scarpered. Which, you know, you say £100, it sounds really... Um, you're thinking in the past that was probably an impressive amount of money. Turns out it was only around, four, what, fourteen grand today? Oh. That's not a lot for someone who's burned down a cathedral. I mean, I would still like turn that him in. money. Yeah. yeah, turn him in in a heartbeat, but I feel a bit hard done to if they they only handed me a hundred quid when I turned in this maniac yeah I'd want a bit more danger pay for that he could be setting fire to me as we speak (laughs) Jonathan was caught within sight of the house he had been born in when asked he openly admitted to starting the fire and when he was told the damage he had caused was likely to amount to the equivalent of over 13 million pounds today (sighs) his only response was to state that he wished it was double as the worship that went on there was idolatrous and superstitious and needed to be stopped. I mean, yeah. He's committed, mm. isn't he, to his cause. 
Oh, definitely. The inevitable trial, because do you know what? They decided they probably had enough evidence to convict mm-hmm. uh, based on, you know, the notes, the fact that he confessed, <laughs> the fact that there was a clear sort of progression from him saying he was going to burn down the Minster to his wife, to him going to the Minster, coming back and the Minster being on fire, to him Did telling his wife ma- that they'd had to leave that moment. <laughs> Did he have many friends? He did. He did have friends. I'm guessing people who lived far away from him. So Mm. like uh, that guy who had helped him, Edward Kell, he lived a good five miles away from where he was causing all the trouble. He lived like one village over. So it seemed like if you didn't have to deal with him day to day... He was okay. Yeah, you you could cope. It was that it was that constant grinding insistence that he had that kind of rubbed people up the wrong way. Insistence. Yeah. You know, he'd be an inch, he'd be a character at a party, and you'd remember yeah, him, and one that you'd want to stay at the party. Yeah, it's like that was a I met. <laughs> that him was once. fun. Yeah, but if he's the person who every time you're just trying to go for your church service, is your weekly there. church service, is the making it three hours longer than it needs to be because yeah. he's heckling every line and he's challenging everything, and then afterwards he wants to corner you over the tea and biscuits to, to, to talk to you more because he noticed that you glanced across at him and he mistook that for interest. Is that he, kind of person, you know, you're on edge whenever he's yeah. there. But the inevitable trial was held at York Castle in the March of the same year, where Jonathan actually faced a potential death penalty hmm. because arson was a capital offence at the time. And you can yeah. imagine... Um, there was a big strength of feeling because, you know, he's being tried in York for burning down the cathedral. Yeah. So there's a lot of people there that are... That are pissed. Yeah. Yeah. Quite strongly anti-Jonathan Martin. That is our building that you've ruined. None of this, the death penalty, the threats of retribution, none of it bothered Jonathan because he was convinced (laughs) that that he'd done the Lord's bidding. No, he didn't even. He wasn't even convinced that he'd be saved. He was like, "I've done what I was set on this to earth do. to do. This is my life's mission. I've made this giant statement." And he was quite, you know, convinced that people would see what he'd done and they would follow suit and start to throw mm-hmm. off the shackles of maybe he wanted religion. to die as a martyr potentially as well. Yeah, he definitely laughed quite a lot in his trial, which apparently rubbed people up the wrong way. Yeah, but also he was like, "Well, this fate was predicted years ago in that dream." When my mum told me I'd be hung, so I can't I can't get angry about that because I've always because known that that would be was, my fate. Yeah, she knew it was gonna. Sorry, he knew it was gonna happen. Yeah. At least I had the strength of character to to set the fire and do the thing that I had to do. I didn't let God down in that moment, even though I knew it would mean my own death. So again, for the cause, the one thing you can respect for that man, he walked the walk. Yeah, he he definitely sort of put his money where his mouth was. He certainly did. However. Even in 1829, it was not considered proper to hang a man who was so obviously and completely mad. And while he did need to be protected from a potential accidental lynching during the trial, so they had armed guards um, escort him to and from the... Because people were so mad. Yeah, so he'd be escorted through the streets of York to the trial... Um, and people will be screaming and shouting and throwing things. It's like when you see them child killers like mm. getting into vans and stuff yeah. and they have to be protected. Because someone's going to shoot them. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, they, they, they wanted to lynch him and then you can imagine the public gallery was completely packed and they looked down at this guy who seemed so mild-mannered and he was laughing and joking and he was smiling 
and he was clearly detached from reality. He wasn't really involved in what was going on, and it it turned to a kind of fascinated pity that this yeah. this guy didn't see the gravity of the situation, didn't really consider any of that. You know, he had his wife there who was really upset, and he's going, don't worry about it. It's so they were fine. starting to see that he wasn't well. Yeah, there was... I, I don't think it, it kind of led to forgiveness, but there was definitely a turn towards understanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was eventually found not guilty by reason of insanity by the judge. <sighs> which meant they let him out. No, but they would have sent him to an asylum, surely. Oh, they didn't send him to a asylum. The asylum. Yep. Bedlam. Yep. They sent him on a long journey down the East Coast to Bedlam Hospital (gasps) in London. Yes. Where he was detained for the rest of his life. Because Bedlam had been there since, I think we said, what was it, 12 something? Mm -hmm. You know, so by this point it had been there well over 600 years. And they got very, very good at stopping people from getting out. Yes. So, whereas when he was in these private asylums that were just pretty much houses with an extra lock, there was a chance always to abscond or to get away. He's this in... was purpose-built. Yeah, it's it's more secure than some prisons. And even if he were to escape, it's very unlikely that people would give him a free pass again. I think no. if you went back to the local magistrate this time, uh, there, there wouldn't be a question of him just going back to his job as a tanner. <laughs> no, definitely not. I did burn down York Minster, but... But I'm insane. So I fine. never burnt down Norton Church, so can I just stay <laughs> here? Um, I promise I'll work extra hard double shifts, and I'll only go to every other Sunday service. To cause trouble. Yeah, I'll give the vicar one week off out of every two. How about that? <laughs> Come on. You know me, it, I'm Jonathan. The amount of vicars he probably sent into, like, mental breakdowns <laughs> yeah bedlam was just full of the vicars that he had yeah seen. just rocking back and forward like, <laughs> and then ah, he saw him walk through and like no <laughs> get me out of here <laughs> yeah seven vicars in bedlam committed suicide on the same day <laughs> <clears throat> he spent the last nine years of his life in bedlam where he was described as being to all intents and purposes appearing as a perfectly harmless and fastidiously clean country gent he was well-mannered. He was very compliant with the staff. He was um, somebody who, who you could have a conversation with. Um, he wouldn't talk about what he'd done, because as far as he was concerned, he'd served his purpose. He'd done what he needed to do. He was now at rest, basically, and he spent his time sketching images of the clergy uh, as demons and monsters. <laughs> and occasionally, they did have to take his drawing materials away if he got too agitated. Yeah. Because he'd get a bit manic with it. But... Generally, just a very calm, seemingly at completely peace. rational person. Yeah, he was at peace. He'd done his mission. Which I think is where the problem was there. The idea of someone being completely insane, but able to um, cope with day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. You know, that these delusions weren't things that came out all the time. He he was able to have these really severe delusions about you know his his religious and grandeur then and stuff. Go on and live a semi-normal. Yeah, it only existence. came out in these little fits and starts, which made it very difficult for them to sort of go. Well, he's uh, you know he's for a lunatic asylum because he wasn't presenting as a traditional lunatic. Because mm-hmm. as we know, around that time, most of the people in the asylums were really um, people suffering from tertiary syphilis. Mm-hmm. Uh, whose brains were turned into mush, so it was very yeah. much that. 
aggression, violence, uh, disordered thought, inability to articulate. He didn't have any of that. He he was psychotic in a very real sense. Yeah, for Uh, sure. In a very calm and unassuming way that only came out when he... Every now and then. yeah, Yeah, when he just calmly said, well, the only way I can check if this bishop's the real deal is if I shoot him. And mm-hmm. he was like, to him, and that, that made was perfect. Sense. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's do that. That's fine. Yeah. His work done, though. Jonathan died on May the 27th, 1838. Three months later, his son Richard, who was also clearly affected uh, by mental illness, which is understandable considering his upbringing. Yeah. Um, because when Jonathan went into the asylums, he was sort of shuttled between family members. Um, he took his dad's death really badly uh, and he committed suicide three months later. Which is why that that branch of the Martin family tree was essentially extinguished. I mean, Martin's I went on, be, his yeah. younger brothers and older brothers had children and yeah. the family line continued, but Jonathan himself, uh, it didn't go Ends. beyond one more generation. And you feel that actually, is that the worst thing? <laughs> snubbed it out while it was well it it just seemed it just seemed like it it was a difficult thing to be born on that particular branch of the martin family tree yeah there was your life was going to be more difficult than than for there was definitely something in the gene pool there wasn't there um i mean yeah but yes that is the story that was gifted to me the story of jonathan martin um who was famous. He was um, a celebrity of crime in the 1820s for and setting Christ. fire to York Minster Cathedral. That's incredible. I'd never heard of him. Never. No. So thank you for the story mm. to you and to Ali. And I should also credit the sources. Um, so there was The Life of Jonathan Martin by Thomas Baston, which mm. was written in 1945, but is the only sort of biography that I could find Uh, the autobiography I dipped in and out of but it was quite clear that he struggled with spelling and sentence structure and coherence and it was really I mean it was referenced so much in the the um the biography you didn't really need to yeah I I, I dipped in and out just to get a sense of the guy and it was quite scary Uh, and then I went back to the sort of more academic and also I used um Jonathan Martin the Incendiary of York Minster by Sabine Baring Gold, which was a chapter from her book, Yorkshire Oddities, Incidents mm. and Strange Events, which if the chapter on Jonathan was anything to go by, probably would be a good source material for me moving forward. So I may try and get a copy. Yes, you must. Mm. That could be a whole series. Because yeah. the one thing I don't have enough of in my life is um, history books. <laughs> of Yorkshire. Well, I, I have the Lancashire ones that you got me, but yeah, maybe I, I should reach branch. an olive branch over the Pennines and, and embrace embrace my it. nearest and dearest neighbours in a in a positive light. No. So there you go. I mean, if anybody else listening wants to wants to send us in a story oh, or, is this or a, a new subject, thing? you will get a shout out as one of our favourite poddy peeps. So I feel like I've mentioned Ali's name about a hundred times. Good, good branding. Yeah, I don't think Ali's selling anything. I'm selling her. Him, Another thing, her, um, her. 
that Ali brought up. Is Ali a he or a she? A she. she, yeah. Brought up as, as part of the, the conversation that led to it. Um, do you remember we covered a, a Jewish boxer called Daniel Mendoza? I do. Didn't go into why Daniel Mendoza was being researched, but according to Ali, Daniel Mendoza is related to both Peter Sellers and June Brown, who you'd know better as Doc Cotton from EastEnders. No so how about way. how about that for some uh, who do you think you are level uh, I research? It. I love it. Mm. So Every there we go. day is a school day. If anyone else wants to wants to tell us things, we're we're always very interested. Well, don't tell me anything. Tell Joe things, and then Joe will tell me. <laughs> I will I will uh, filter through the information that's worth sharing, and I will present <laughs> that to Ollie on a plate. That's how that's how this works. That, that's how this friendship works. <laughs> Ollie needs someone to filter the information that he receives. Yes. Because you're you're a busy man, you've got a lot of fingers in a lot of pies. You need I do. You need it quick, quick, quick. You don't I do. Boom. No worries. So did Give you enjoy? Me. I did. I did. And I didn't know anything about this chap and uh also I want to go to York Minster now. I do as well. I've not been for a while. I was in York last year on my way back up. From the south to Scotland, um, but I went there for the railway museum, obviously. Yeah, and that's on the other side of town, isn't it? It's that's on the other side of town. So I did go in, and I did see, obviously, the Minster it's from hard a distance. To miss. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's massive, yeah. but um, I didn't go in it, no. and it's still there. So um, our chap would not be pleased. Well, when was it? It was um, early February uh, that he set the fire, February the first. So what we could do in honour. It's a week away, actually, from when we're recording, because we're recording on the 24th. We could go for the 1st of February. I'm up for it if you are. And we could set a fire in York <laughs> Minster in honour of Jonathan Martin. Burn the books! <laughs> I'm just going to clip that out as a, as a soundbite. <laughs> Hi there, it's Emma, Chief Organiser at Consistently Eccentric. Here to remind you all that if you like what you hear, you can catch up with all previous episodes and session series by searching for us on Acast, Spotify and iTunes. How fancy. You can also join us on Instagram at Consistently Eccentric Podcast, where we update on the weekly episode and post all of our bonus content for you lucky lot. See you next week. <laughs>